open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who paid the debt of our sin. And Lord, we can freely walk in grace while we're here for the remainder of our time here on this earth. And Lord, trusting you each day to give us the wisdom and the strength through the power of the Holy Spirit to live for you. Lord, we thank you for your word that you've given to us. Lord, we thank you um, that it is true and that we can trust it. And and Father, we uh, desire to draw principles for life from it. And so, Lord, we pray tonight that you would just enable uh, our brother Ken uh, to be filled with your spirit as he shares from your word. And Lord, just uh, allow our hearts to be open. Help us to set aside the busyness of our week, whatever we've been going through. Lord, I pray that this would be a place where we can come and just kind of take a deep breath and, and relax for the next few moments together as Ken shares with us. And uh, Lord, we thank you for those who come out. Thank you those who are visiting here tonight. We pray that they would um, find their time here to be blessed as well. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 Well, thank you for being here this evening. Great to see you. Uh, Eva is going to read the scripture and paste uh, beginning Matthew chapter 12. I can say that. Yes, you can. Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 22. Then they brought to Jesus a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. (coughs) If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, I have it on fairly good authority that I've been coming here for about 40 years. Uh, so some of you know me fairly well. Some of you I didn't meet till this year. <coughs> and um, I will therefore inform you that for about 10 years I was an atheist and didn't believe in the existence of God at all. I uh, thought church and religion was a big waste of time and money and that science had all the answers that people needed. After I became a Christian then the people that I thought were my friends started attacking me for that reason and I had to come up with some good reasons why do I believe what I believe why do I really believe Jesus is the son of God and the God come in the flesh and the only savior etc and I came up with seven reasons that I'm not going to go through tonight but I want to look at one with you and that is the impact that Jesus made on the people of his day. They met him, they uh, talked with him, they heard what he had to say, 
And so what kind of an effect did he have on them? And I'm not particularly thinking about the miracles because that's a separate category. How did people rate Jesus? And there are a number of people's opinions that uh, we should take into account. Perhaps we begin with John the Baptist, who is an interesting character. Uh, His parents were very godly folk, and uh, he was really miraculously conceived. Not that his mother was a virgin, but she was probably about 80. (laughs) uh, That's quite old to have your first child. And uh, she hadn't been able to conceive at all before that. They were influenced greatly by the Holy Spirit, held in high regard, and the son they had was called John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was a very interesting character. Uh, He was seriously committed to God, and in his day... Religion was flourishing. There was lots of religion. The temple in Jerusalem could hold about 40,000 people. One thing which is a little bit bigger than Grace Bible Church. (laughs) And and it was paid for as far as I know. Um, So religion was flourishing. There were priests and uh, all kinds of elaborate ceremonies and traditions going back. 1300 years to Moses <clears throat> the priesthood was inherited and uh, religion was really flourishing uh, but the people were a bit tired of religion because while it was elaborate and uh, well financed etc there was a lack of reality and John the Baptist uh, turned aside from all of that And he actually ministered in the desert. And people went out into the desert to listen to this preacher because they believed he really had a message from God. There was a genuineness and an authority about John the Baptist that they went to see. And you know it's hard enough to get people to come to church on Sunday morning, isn't it? And, wow, Wednesday evening, this is pretty amazing. But uh, <clears throat> to, it's not that difficult for us. We just get in our car, which is air-conditioned if it's summertime, and just drive over a few minutes, and there we are. They had to walk, for the most part, in the desert. Is that comfortable? No sound system, no shade to listen to this man because they believed he was genuine. When they asked him, you know, what's your ministry? Why are you doing this? He said, I'm really not important at all. I'm just a voice crying in the desert. My whole life is about preparing the way for one person who's going to come after me. And this is all I exist for. And I am not worthy to bend down, take off his sandals, and wash his dirty feet. He's the important one. And his whole life is about this. And when Jesus talked to the people, he said, why did you go out in the desert to listen to this man? What did you go and see? A man dressed in fancy clothes, blade of grass, 
shaken by the wind. What did he mean by that? When the people began to go into the desert to listen to the John the Baptist, <laughs> the big preachers of the day were upset. You know, we've got all this education. This is our life. This is our reputation. We've got this beautiful temple with its shadiness and great acoustics. We've got this fantastic backing group. You know, King David had 4,000 musical instruments made to his design. Not everyone different, of course, but 4,000 individual instruments. And that was only the orchestra. The choir was bigger than that. <laughs> and the events in the temple were pretty spectacular. <clears throat> and when the professionals saw all these people going out in the desert to listen to John the Baptist, they were upset. It wouldn't hurt their livelihood. They'd still have plenty of money. But their reputation, their dignity was hurt. So what did they try and do? They tried to get John the Baptist on board with them. How did they try it? Two ways. One is they offered him a position. You know? Why operate out there? Why don't you join us in the temple? And you live pretty simply. That diet you eat is really very basic, rather disgusting. <laughs> we, we can do better than that. And they offered him position and salary. When that didn't work, they tried the threats. That didn't work either. He was not a blade of grass blown by the wind. He stood tall and nobody could make him bend. And he didn't offer their bribes and wear the fancy clothes that would go with it. He insisted on maintaining his own ministry from God. And people went out to listen to him. And he tells us when he saw Jesus, he says, I saw and bore record that this is the Son of God. And he's the kind of man you've got to take seriously. If he can't be bribed and he can't be intimidated, then obviously he really believes what he's saying. And this is what his whole life is about. And he indicates Jesus and says, he's the one you've got to follow. He's the one whose feet I'm not worthy to wash. <clears throat> so John the Baptist is one person. Then we might take in a sort of opinion poll from the common people. And there are a couple of incidents that we could look at. One of them we just had read for us. There's this man who is demon-possessed. And we'll talk about that a bit more in a minute uh, but the effect of this is he is blind deaf and dumb he can't speak so how do you communicate with somebody like that <laughs> the, he wasn't influenced by the crowd saying oh it's Jesus he couldn't hear them how do they know Jesus is there or who Jesus is. So he can't speak, can't see, can't hear, and he's been that way for years, probably all his life. 
and then suddenly he is delivered. He can speak and he can hear. And the crowd are really excited, wouldn't you be? <laughs> if you've been there. What are the crowd saying? Isn't this the son of David? What does that mean? The Messiah. The expected king that we're all waiting for. The hope of Israel. The subject of the great prophets of all. And this is what the crowd is saying. This must be the Messiah. Another place we could look is in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus is with the disciples at a place called Caesarea Philippi, which is an interesting sort of name. It gives you two clues. Caesarea makes you think of Caesar. Very good. Who is Caesar? The Roman emperor. Philippi, Herod Philip, king of the Jews. Caesarea Philippi in Jesus' day was a brand new city. It wasn't very big, it was quite small. But it was very elegant. And it was built mainly of mar the central buildings of white marble. Very beautiful, very elegant. And it was built by the Jewish king, Philip, as a tribute to the Roman emperor, Caesar. Which is why it was called Caesarea Philippi. And you didn't give cheap tributes to the Roman emperor. <laughs> it was counterproductive. So it was very elegant, very beautiful, and it is a kind of backcloth of Jewish wealth and Roman authority and power. And it's there that Jesus says to his disciples, what are people saying about me? And when you think about it, that is a crazy question, isn't it? It's as though you were to go to Washington, D.C. next week in, in, in your oldest, raggiest clothes and uh, wait on the lawns of the White House for a, a big tourist coach to pull up and a load of Japanese tourists spill out with all their elect electronic paraphernalia and you stand in front of them and say, hey, do you know who I am? <laughs> what would happen to you, do you think? <laughs> they, they would put you somewhere where you couldn't damage yourself or anybody else, wouldn't they? <laughs> and here's this unemployed carpenter with no education and no position and no money. Foxes of holes, birds of nests, son of man, there's nowhere to lay his head. Could somebody lend me a coin? I want to talk about it in a minute. <coughs> and this unemployed carpenter against this backdrop of Jewish wealth and Roman power says, what are they saying about me? The response of the disciples is interesting. They say, some say you're Jeremiah back from the dead. A prophet who died 600 years ago. Or one of the great men of old. Maybe John the Baptist back from the dead, because John had been executed by this time. And this is what the ordinary people were saying about Jesus. And of course, what people say about you reflects the caliber of your impact on them. 
<laughs> and uh, naturally, it's possible to fool quite a lot of people some of the time. <clears throat> but Jesus then turns to his disciples and he says, how about you? What do you think? You know me better than they do. You don't just see my public image. You know what I'm like in private. You know how much I sleep, how much I pray, how much I eat, what I eat. You see my whole lifestyle, 24-7. What do you think about me? And what the people were saying about Jesus was amazing. But it wasn't big enough for the disciples. And Peter is thinking about it and trying to think it through. What do we think about this person? And suddenly Peter bursts out and he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it sort of fits with Peter's thinking, but it goes beyond that. He hadn't worked that out before. And Jesus says, oh, does not say, oh, hey, Peter, you know, that's really nice of you, but that's way over the top. I'm not in that kind of league at all. <clears throat> no, he agrees. In fact, he says, hello, my father's been giving secrets away again, hasn't he? <laughs> you didn't work that out for yourself, Peter. I know you don't. You're fast too slow. <laughs> my father told you, didn't he? <clears throat> and see, Jesus confirms what Peter has said, but what Peter is saying is from his own heart. And the other disciples can agree with it because they're going to live for him and die for him. They're never offered a salary. They're never offered a title. They're not told how many hours a week they'd be expected to work or what sort of a vacation package they would have, or an insurance package, or a retirement package, except one that's not in this world. <coughs> but you know, nothing. There's no attempt at paying them to get on board. And, and yet they're going to live for him and die for him. <coughs> so that's what his inner circle thought about him. So the crowds think he's the Messiah or John the Baptist back from the dead or Jeremiah back from the dead. His disciples, though, go beyond that. <clears throat> and Jesus himself agrees with them. There's another occasion, uh, more than one, of course, where Jesus confronts somebody who is demon-possessed. One I'm thinking of you'd find in, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, and it's when Jesus steps ashore in the country of the Gerasenes. It's on the shore of Lake Galilee, but it's not a place he's been to before. And he has never been there before, but he steps ashore there. Now, just imagine this man who is demon-possessed. He's not blind, he's not deaf and dumb, but he lives in the tombs, and he is always cutting himself 
with bits of stone and uh, <coughs> he wears no clothes suppose you lived there <laughs> how would you feel having this guy in your neighborhood <laughs> see it would affect the price of real estate wouldn't it <laughs> he lives amongst rotting corpses so he stinks he is always cutting himself so there are always open wounds on his body and he's naked was he a problem for the society? certainly was so when they do something well they tried they arrested him they bound him with iron chains and were trying to lead him away when he just broke the chains they tried it more than once with the same result there was nothing defective in the chains there are people of course who are very skeptical about the existence of demons but this man confronted Jesus the moment Jesus stepped ashore for the very first time in this place and there was no advertising campaign that had been taking place beforehand there weren't big hoardings saying Jesus of Nazareth is coming to hold a healing campaign for the month of August now when Jesus stepped ashore he looked just like any other laboring man people had no idea who he was except for this man who confronted Jesus the moment he stepped ashore and said what are you doing here Jesus son of the most high God have you come to torment us before our time and the demons in the man recognized Jesus that is why he knew his human name Jesus and his true identity which the disciples didn't even know by this time son of the most high God they also knew that he had authority over them and they couldn't resist him and they pleaded with him to allow them to leave the man and go into a herd of pigs because you see the authority of Jesus is such that a demon can't even go into a pig without his permission all authority is his so the demons recognize Jesus as their enemy and the man expresses it in just a few minutes if even that long the demons are thrown out they go into the pigs and the pigs are unhappy <laughs> and they do something very unpig like they stampede pigs don't usually stampede they're not herd animals for one thing and they're not particularly energetic <laughs> or they don't go jogging every morning <coughs> but they stampede and they run down 
a slope which ends in a low cliff over the Galilee. And uh, probably the ones in the front realized where they were heading and perhaps tried to put the brakes on, but there was too much weight coming behind them and they couldn't stop. And they all went over the edge. Now we have an expression in English, pigs might fly. (laughs) And it's really an expression for something unlikely. (laughs) And these particular pigs couldn't fly anyway. They just dropped into the water where they discovered not not only could they not fly, they couldn't swim either. <coughs> and they were all drowned. And it was lost. The owners of the pigs came out to see what had happened because the pig keepers had gone into town to confess that they'd just lost <laughs> the animals they were supposed to be looking after. And they obviously didn't believe the account of the pig keepers, so they came out, it says, to see what had happened. In other words, we don't believe this rubbish. (laughs) But when they got out there, they found a man sitting at the feet of Jesus wearing clothes and behaving like a normal person. And we're told they were taken in great fear. And they pleaded with Jesus to leave. And you might think, why be afraid now? And be afraid of the man who is breaking chains and running around naked. (laughs) But why be afraid now? Well, it's not him they're afraid of. See, they knew they couldn't control the man. And Jesus is obviously vastly superior to the guy, so we don't want to deal with him and please go away. And he did, because he doesn't stay around where he's not wanted. When I um, think about demons, I have to say this. The man not only has supernatural knowledge, he knows Jesus' human name, and his divine identity, he has supernatural health. See, when you have open wounds, you can very easily pick up infection, can't you? Where did he live? In the tombs? <laughs> How much infection do you think there was uh, amongst all these decaying bodies? Not only... has he got supernatural health because he doesn't get sick he has supernatural strength because he can break the chains and knowledge demons are kind of serious contenders and you don't want to be left alone with one (laughs) but they're nothing compared to Jesus all authority is his who else might we look at? Well, there's a centurion, Roman officer, <coughs> and, and uh, disciplined. And he has a servant, who, and the servant is sick, and he consults Jesus. And Jesus says, fine, I'll 
come kneeling. And the Roman officer says, you don't need to. I'm not worthy that you should come into my house. Now that itself is pretty amazing because the Romans were the conquerors. They held the power. They defeated these Jewish rabble. And they were the masters. And for a Roman to say to an unemployed Jew, <laughs> I, I'm not worthy that you should come into my house. That's pretty amazing. But more than that, he recognizes that Jesus has authority. I'm in the army. And I understand authority. I'm a man under authority. <laughs> when an senior officer tells me what I'm supposed to do, I do it. And I've got men under me, and when I give them an order, they do it. I don't have to go and watch them make sure. I know they'll do it. This is the army. It's a chain of authority, and I understand authority, and I realize that you've got spiritual authority, and if you say the word, that's all it takes. You don't have to be there. Your word has authority. Say the word, my servant will be healed. And you've got this opinion expressed by another kind of man that, again, you've got to take seriously. And the servant is healed because when the centurion gets back home, he's healed already. But he's healed the moment that Jesus says the word even though they're not there and the man doesn't know the sick man here doesn't know Jesus two or three miles away over here is speaking can't hear him <laughs> but he's healed at that precise moment <clears throat> and uh, this is reported to us uh, for us by Luke who is a doctor uh, he's not only a doctor he, he's a meticulous historian he opens his gospel by saying, I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. <clears throat> Not only is he a meticulous historian, but he's a doctor, and sometimes people without knowing any better say, well, back then, they didn't know anything, did they? What did a doctor know back then? Well, doctors in your country and mine take an oath when they begin practice and it's called the Hippocratic Oath not the Hippocratic Oath that's a different one there's some people that take that one but, but these take the Hippocratic why do they do that? well there was a doctor called Hippocrates who lived about 150 years before Jesus because medicine was well developed under the Greeks it was lost later but under the Greeks medicine was pretty well developed and Luke was in that tradition. <clears throat> so you have his uh, enemies in the sense of the demons. But then you have some other enemies, lots of other enemies. Jesus always had enemies as soon as he began his public ministry. He had 30 years of peace as a carpenter. As soon as he began his public ministry, he had enemies, lots of them. And some of them were highly educated, very intelligent, very devious, and um, very well organized, some of them. 
Uh, we'll begin with the ones in, in the account that was read for us of the deaf and dumb man. Because the, the people are saying, this has got to be the son of David, the Messiah. And they nah, forget it. <clears throat> they wanted to discredit Jesus because just as John the Baptist showed up the emptiness of their religious paraphernalia, so did Jesus. So they want to discredit Jesus. Now, suppose you were one of them. You're a Pharisee and this guy has just got healed and, and all the people are excited and saying, this has got to be the Son of God. What do you say? How do you respond to that? Well, what are you getting so worked up about? Come on, this kind of thing happens all the time, doesn't it? Well, no. <laughs> this was the first time they'd ever seen anything like this. Not a commonplace thing. So, well, actually, it's not the same man. It's just a trick. Well, sorry. He lives here. We, we, he's been this way for years. We all know who he is. <coughs> well, it's a, just a bit of clever psychology. <laughs> okay, so how do you do it? No. They are forced to admitting it's miraculous. There's no other explanation. If there was one, they'd have come up with it. They are forced to say it's a miracle. But they are determined not to admit that Jesus is the Messiah. So what do they say? It's the power of Satan. This man casts out demons by the prince of demons. And when your enemies ha have to admit you're miraculous, you must be somebody pretty special, right? In some cases, what your enemies say about you is more significant than what your friends say. You expect your friends to be nice, sometimes anyway. <coughs> but for your enemies, that's different. Uh, and Jesus exposes that no time at all. <laughs> Any house divided against itself is going to collapse. And Satan is not stupid enough to go around throwing out his own demons. And if he does, how do you do it? And how do you teach your people to do it? Which was, of course, a seriously embarrassing question because they had no idea how to do it. <coughs> and uh, uh, Jesus keeps on meeting hostile situations. One of the most subtle takes place at the beginning of John's Gospel, chapter 8, Carrying on from John 7, you realize that Jesus has had no sleep. He's spent the night on the Mount of Olives. Early the next morning, he's in the temple, this vast temple in Jerusalem. And he's teaching. And the place is packed with people who've come to listen to him. Try and put yourself in that position. Jesus has no education. He's not an experienced teacher. He's only in ministry for three years total. 
and you don't get experience in three years. You don't hire a senior pastor with three years' experience, do you? He hasn't done a course in public relations. He's not well-connected. And here he is in the most famous building in the world. Packed with people who've come to listen to him. What an opportunity for an inexperienced preacher. (laughs) If this was you, what would you think? (laughs) Well, better tell them everything I know. This opportunity isn't going to happen again, is it? And uh, So, trying... To communicate with, we'll be conservative and say 30,000 people, is <laughs> yeah. difficult. Yeah. Holding everybody's attention, old people, young people, different dialects, etc. And he's interrupted. He's had no sleep. This is a very unusual situation for him. He's had no sleep. And some men come, but they're young men, he doesn't recognize them. They've been sent by older men who are Jesus' enemies. And they've been racking their brains. How are we going to get rid of this, this nuisance, this influence that's undermining our culture and our reputation and our religion? We've got to destroy them. How are we going to do it? And this is probably the most subtle plot they came up with. They didn't appear themselves because they didn't want to put Jesus on his guard, so they sent some of their anonymous students. And they brought with them a woman taken in the act of adultery. They just went to the house, dragged her out of bed and into the temple. She's probably naked. And they interrupt Jesus in the middle of his teaching. And they say, Master, we just caught this woman in the act of adultery. Jesus probably never saw a naked woman before this. He just caught her in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses says, she must be stoned to death. What do you say? What is the thinking behind this? Jesus has already gone on record saying, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill the law. And he said this in public, he's taught it, and he's known for this. Well, here's an opportunity to fulfill the law. This woman is guilty, she should be stoned to death. What's wrong with that? Well, the Jews are a conquered nation. The Romans are in charge. They allow the Jews to have their own law courts, but only for minor offences not for capital offences. If the Jews 
were allowed to execute people, they'd have executed Jesus by the Jewish method of stoning. They could not do that. They had to get Pilate to condemn him. So he's condemned by the Romans and executed by crucifixion the Roman way. If Jesus says stone her to death on the Roman law, he is guilty of telling people to commit murder. Capital offense. 30,000 witnesses, we've got rid of him. If he says, well, I know we ought to stone her to death, but we can't do it. Oh, really? Well, last month you said you can come to fulfill the law. Now you're telling us we can't. And he's going to look like an idiot in front of 30,000 people. If, on the other hand, he says stone her to death, then he's going to be executed by the Romans. Either way, they've got rid of him. The timing is very subtle. He's engrossed in his teaching. He's had no sleep. He's never seen a naked woman before. It's embarrassing. Even when you know that it's a plot and they didn't say, by the way, make the wrong decision, we're going to kill you. <laughs> no, we, Master, we need your advice even when you know it's a plot, how on earth do you get out of it? The instinct is, get her out of here, let's get on with the Bible class. <laughs> he says the most difficult thing it's possible to say. Nothing. He stoops down and draws little pictures in the dust. What was in the pictures? Don't know. Why aren't told? What he doesn't do is stare at the woman. Everybody else is, at least half the group. <laughs> they press him. The drama builds, the tension builds. Finally, he stands up and says, He who is without sin throw the first stone goes back to his artwork interesting thing happens a very profound awareness of sin begins to grip the entire crowd some no doubt guilty of lust And the Holy Spirit takes Jesus' purity and disinterest to bring home their guilt. Those that were plotting his death, guilty of hate and murder in their hearts. Hypocrisy. They're not interested in seeing the law fulfilled. If they were interested in seeing the law fulfilled, they'd have brought the man. He was probably one of their buddies. That's how they knew where to find it. Must have known somehow. And this 
profound awareness of sin comes about everybody and one after another they turn and slink out. They can't even stay in the same building. Until Jesus is left alone with the wound. Where are your accusers? Did no man condemn you? No man, Lord. The one person most of us would have overlooked has been won over and admits, admits Jesus' lordship. And what was devised as such a clever, almost infallible scheme to wreck Jesus has blown up in their faces. And he is even more firmly established in the eyes of the people. He comes into Jerusalem and particularly Luke uh, kind of sets the scene mentioning several times we are going up to Jerusalem. We're going up to Jerusalem. Uh, as though there's going to be a high noon decisive encounter when he gets there. And as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he goes to the temple, which he finds is seriously corrupted. People are supposed to bring sacrifices. But the priests have got it rigged so that they can't bring their own sacrifices. They have to buy one in the temple. They can't buy it with their own money. They can only buy it with temple money. So they have to exchange their money for temple money at an exorbitant exchange rate. They're being ripped off in the exchange and they're being ripped off by what they have to pay for the sacrifice. And instead of being away in these people can come to God, the priests are making it impossible for people to come to God. They're just making it an opportunity to satisfy their own greed. And what should be a house of prayer has become a den of thieves. And in his anger, he makes a whip out of rope and drives the money changers out, overturns their tables and the coins rolling all over the place. And the authorities are deeply upset. <laughs> Who does this guy think he is? Well, so they confront him. By what authority did you do this? Who gave you this authority? You're nobody. You don't even live here. So how do you answer that? By what authority do you do this? Well, he's not a policeman. <laughs> not a priest. Not a school teacher. He's got no position. Doesn't even live there. He might say, oh, I don't really have any authority. Or he might say, you know, I've got the authority of God. It's kind of arrogant, because he's not a priest. Not been anointed. 
so he says, okay, I'll ask you a question. John the Baptist, where did he get his authority? Because like Jesus, he didn't have a position, didn't have money. <laughs> but all the ordinary people knew that John the Baptist was sent from God. So if the priest said John the Baptist had no authority, then they put themselves at odds with the people. And they'll create a riot. So they can't say John the Baptist has no authority. If they say John the Baptist came from God, he's, hmm, right. <laughs> Is that so? <coughs> And by implication, he's saying that his authority is the same as John the Baptist, and they're sent from God. He's just not seeing it. And they have a little muttered discussion amongst themselves, and then they, they say to him, we cannot tell. And Jesus says, neither will I tell you. It's not you can't tell, you just won't say it, will you? And if you won't answer my question, I don't have to answer your question. <coughs> and they leave discomforted. And the next bunch that come are the Sadducees, who don't believe in miracles, etc. <coughs> don't believe in judgment, don't believe in the afterlife, but they're wealthy, affluent, well-connected Jews. And they confront him with their favorite question, which is about this woman who gets married and the husband dies. And uh, so under the law, his younger brother has to marry her. And so he does. But he dies and his younger brother again has to marry her. And seven men, one after the other, marry her. And the last one must have been very brave. <laughs> but he dies as well. And then the question, well, after death and the resurrection, which one is she going to be married to? Or are they going to have a shootout to decide which one owns her? <laughs> and for them, they think it's an unanswerable question. <laughs> and Jesus says... Uh, you err because you're ignorant. You don't know the scriptures. And you think there's no life after death? You don't see that in your scriptures? Have you never read, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Not I was. I am. And your scriptures clearly teach they must still be alive or he couldn't still be their God, could he? And he answers this famous question that nobody else has been able to answer. And the very interesting statement that comes after that is nobody else dared ask him any more questions. <laughs> It's not bad for an unemployed carpenter, is it? <laughs> yeah. <coughs> and then one or two other people.
people we should consult. Um, when Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan, the baptism was for repentant sinners. And so any onlooker would naturally think, well, if Jesus is getting baptized, he must be a sinner, mustn't he? <laughs> well, the Father doesn't want you to think that. So he ripped the clouds apart and he said, Hey, that's my son, in whom I am delighted. Don't go away with the impression he's a sinner. <laughs> he's the only one who's not. And of all people that we should consult, he is probably the first one, isn't he? What does he say? That's my son. In case you missed it, when Peter, James, and John are on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Peter, as usual, opens his mouth before his brain's been switched on, <coughs> the Father draws near in a bright cloud and says, that is my son. Listen to him. And in three years in public ministry, Jesus is identified by the common people, the demon-possessed, his enemies, his friends, even God himself. This is my son. How did Jesus operate? How did he know what to say when he was in the temple with the naked woman? When he is challenged about his authority? When he's asked the question about the woman with seven husbands? How did he know what to say? He tells us. The words I say to you are not my words. The Father who lives in me does everything. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When you've heard me, you've heard the Father. And now he says, As the Father sent me, so I send you. He is sending us out not to display the magnificence of our own education and wisdom. He is sending us out so that he might speak through us. So just as he said, the words I say to you are not my words. It's the Father who lives in me. So you and I should be able to say, the words I say to you are not mine. The Jesus who lives in me does everything. As the Father sent me, so I send you. You've got a mission. Isn't that great? Yeah. Because yeah. you've got all the resources it takes to fulfill it, haven't you? And if you've got a mission and all the resources it takes... You have no excuse. <laughs> so have a great mission. Thank you. <laughs>